Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by a partnership between Missio Alliance and Kairos Partnerships. Good morning, JR. Good morning, Doug. Always great to be with you. Yes, even in a digital space, it's good to see your face. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I, I know Zoom fatigue is real for people, and I'm feeling it. I assume you're feeling it as well. Absolutely. It's important. It's the way we're connected. But mm-hmm. man, really looking forward to when we're able to fully engage again. Yeah. Uh, Mayor and I were talking on a walk the other day and we just said, we understand the Zoom fatigue, but there's also part of it that for us, we just want to say, this is the best of what we have right now. Yep. And so let's be grateful for it, even though there are these really, um, there are definitely some things that hold us back to feeling fully present with people. It is, it's what we got. And so I think being grateful for that is a good thing. Yep. Yep. In fact, I was reading, you're exactly right. I was reading an article, um, uh, several articles on like what's behind Zoom fatigue. Why is that? And it was really fascinating. It said that our brains are on overdrive trying to figure out, okay, this person I see in front of me, my brain says it is, but my heart knows it's not true. Mm. And so we're exhausted realizing like, even though I'm looking at you on a screen right now, that you're you're not in the room with me, <laughs> even though my brain is trying to tell me you're in the room with me. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we are seeing our own reflection, which is very rare in an incarnational meeting that we're seeing ourselves. So we're sort mm. of reminded we're always on. <laughs> and mm. then the third thing is if you're in a meeting, like a Zoom meeting with four or five or 10 or 12 people, they're all staring directly at you. <laughs> you're never in a physical meeting where every, unless you're teaching somewhere, <laughs> but in a meeting where like for a few hours, everybody's looking directly at you, right? We normally sit in a circle where we're not all staring at every human being in the circle. And they just said those dynamics have often created a headache, a headache for people and just feeling people feeling mentally drained at the end of the day. And I thought that was pretty fascinating, but you're right. We are grateful for it because without it, I mean, imagine this virus reality. If we did had, if we had no technology, like it just, it just, that continues to run through my mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Me too. It, it's almost like if, if we go back in time to 10 to 20 years ago, I mean, when, when some of our 20, 30 years ago, when some of our most, uh, our most favorite authors were writing guys like Eugene Peterson and, um, some others, uh, how they would have approached a lot of these pieces. Uh, yeah. I, it's, it's very, very interesting. Um, and, and it is, it's one of those things where it's like that, that tired thing is real. And I think it's important to, to recognize that it's real, but it's also important to say, Hey, we've got to do with what we have. So yeah. What are some things you're noodling on these days, JR? Yeah, well, I'm really excited about this interview that we're going to ha- we're going to have with our guest here coming up and the idea of the need for healing. And so, I've been thinking a great deal about this. I mean, there's that I love Mr. Rogers, you know, I I just I loved him growing up. I I love the movie with Tom Hanks now. Um one of the things that sticks with me is a quote. He said, "When I was a little kid and I saw scary things, my mom always said to me, look for the helpers. The helpers are always there." And as I think about the church moving forward, I think about this idea of the world has has seen scary things, right? And right now the world is looking for healers. And so I want to just adapt a little bit of what Mr. Rogers is saying to say, hey, when we see scary things, look for the healers. And right now, who are our heroes, right? Our heroes are uh, those in the medical profession. Right, cities around the world, 7 p.m. every night, people go out and cheer and bang pots and pans as a way of uh, acknowledging and celebrating and applauding those on the front lines. And so, you know, we've been entrusted with the message of Jesus, and it's about healing, right? And so, you know, our early rendition of our youth group, uh, our student ministry, was called Sozo, right? S O Z O, and this idea that. What does it mean? You know, it means to to save and to heal and to deliver all at the same time. And so, yes, Jesus saves. The gospel never changes. But I think in this next season coming out of a pandemic and the pop, possible reverberations and echoes and spikes that could happen as a result of this uh, reengagement that states are now entering into, 
is that people are looking for healers and that Jesus saves, but in this new season, Jesus heals the sozo Jesus. The gospel remains the same, but the emphasis will need to change. And I, I continue to keep going back to that. That's what I'm noodling on these days. So yeah. What about you? Yeah. Well, I, just to comment on that, I think you're, you're right on. Um, I was having a conversation with, with someone actually, uh, Joel, the guy who, par- who produces our podcast earlier yeah, today Joel. and, um, on productions, check it out. So good. Uh, but what I've really appreciated is we had a similar conversation. I said, I think what I'm noticing is you have doctors and nurses who are extremely fatigued because they've been working in this, in this field, uh, and healing and they're overworked and there's a lot. And even just wondering the importance of the way that you're going to see, uh, uh, an emotional, uh, fatigue slash potential for emotional and physical fatigue for pastors a few months from now too. And even the healing ministry that's going to need to take place for pastors. And like wondering like what, I think the question I keep noodling on is what, what is happening to the soul of the pa- of pastors in this season? Like I was thinking about the pastor who might be a little bit older and not technologically savvy. Mm. And does that make him feel or her feel very, um, you know, outdated or, or is, you know, does guilt and shame potentially come into that picture? And, and, um, yeah, just even thinking of, man, how how do we really continue to help support our pastors who might be feeling really isolated and alone? Cause I, I mean, I know we talk about, you know, pastor isolation is a real thing. Um, pre pandemic, pre pandemic, <laughs> exactly. And now, yeah, even more so. Now that I'm thinking about it through a lot of the things that have been happening recently, like I, it's, I, I think the need for us to develop healthy friendships and to continue to to check in with one another, uh, I can't think of a more important time. And I think too, even recognizing that a lot of those conversations uh, for the next few months are going to be like, I'm not really sure how I'm feeling. I think I'm numb, but there's some things that are definitely there and realizing it's just, we have to be in it for the long haul with one another. So that's, that's what I've been noodling on. Yep. Important things for us to be thinking through. And I agree with you, Doug. I think in the months ahead, we're going to see pastoral burnout. Some of it's going to be flame out, rust out, burnout, but uh, the the care for souls, the care for our own souls will just continue to grow more and more in the season ahead. And so that's why we're going to press into this here on the Monday Morning Pastor podcast even further is the importance of caring for our own souls, especially now, maybe more important than any other time in our life time of ministry. Our guest today is Dr. Philip Monroe. Dr. Monroe is a clinical psychologist who specializes in trauma, church leader health, and equipping lay leaders in basic counseling skills. He has spent 18 years leading Missio Seminary's Graduate School of Counseling and continues to direct their Global Trauma Recovery Institute. Currently, Dr. Monroe leads the Trauma Healing Institute with the American Bible Society and maintains a small private practice with Diane Langberg and Associates in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania. Please enjoy our conversation with Dr. Monroe. Well, thanks, Phil, for the opportunity to have you on. I know you're very busy, but uh, thanks for joining us here on the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. Happy to be here. Well, uh, Phil, we've been really excited about having you on for the last several weeks, and this idea of trauma certainly is on everyone's mind. Uh, We just had Mako Fujimura, the artist, on uh, recently, and he talked about trauma and loss and lament in these times. You and your background with trauma, uh, maybe we can start with just some foundational questions. First of all, how did you get involved in trauma uh, counseling and support? And then second of all, how would you define trauma? We throw that word around a lot. How would we define the word trauma? Sure. Well, I got into trauma counseling and interacting both domestically and on a global scale because of Dr. Diane Langberg, who many people know has been a mentor and a teacher for a lot of folks around the issues of trauma, especially sexual trauma. So uh, she's been mentoring me for years and together we formed the Global Trauma Recovery Institute to train people how to enter international settings, not their home turf, in order to help without being a harm. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's that's really where we got to start. And Dr. Langberg talks about trauma being a mission field. Obviously, trauma disrupts lives. It creates all sorts of problems, uh, physical, emotional, but especially spiritual problems where people feel disconnected from themselves. They feel disconnected from their communities. They feel disconnected from God. And they have a lot of discontent. They don't know what to do about it. So it's a mission field because that's what's happening and where people have need, but it's also an opportunity because as Dr. Langberg would also say, trauma is the place where God and trauma come together at the foot of the cross. Mm -hmm. And so where he really does understand what we're going through. And so it becomes this opportunity to be known in a place where it's really uh, very painful for us. Mm-hmm. So we use this word trauma and we throw it around sometimes rather loosely. Um, events can be traumatic, uh, meaning that they be- can become these moments where um, we feel disconnected from whom we used to be. It often has uh, terror, horror, uh, you know, things that happen that just disrupt our lives. But when we do talk about trauma, we talk about chronic effects. So you know, I can have a near miss in a car where I almost have an accident and I feel shaken up for a few hours, maybe even for a few days, but then I kind of go back to normal. That is an ongoing trauma. But when something like that happens and now I can never get back and I'm always on alert, I'm trying to shut down these intrusive memories. I can't get out of them. They're there. I even maybe try drugs, alcohol, sleep, all sorts of things, but nothing helps. I'm always on alert, then that's what trauma is. Mm-hmm. That's a good distinction on that. So, you know, um, I, I think some people might be surprised to learn that the Trauma Healing Institute is connected to the American Bible Society, not because those aren't good things, but thinking, okay, Bible, but trauma and counseling, uh, they certainly are connected, but mm-hmm. it, it, maybe explain connecting the dots a little bit on that. Sure. I think that's the big question on most people is that like, oh, I don't understand. Why would that be? But think about this. Bible societies are very interested in people getting Bibles in their heart language and having them and having access, but they don't just want them to have it. They want them to engage with it. And so you have to start thinking about what are the barriers that keep people from engaging with their Bibles? Well, obviously, illiteracy would be one of them, not being able to have them, but trauma is one of those things that causes people to be unable to connect to their faith, to the Bible, because my life doesn't make sense. I don't know how to fit those two together. And frankly, in the church, we haven't really put those two things together. So um, the Bible Society found that trauma was a blocking factor for people being able to engage with God and scripture. So then they stumbled upon the healing the wounds of trauma, how the church can help materials. And uh, we have a suite of materials for those in order for people to begin that conversation. That's really, really helpful, Phil. I think, you know, as we think about the church and trauma, there it feels like there's a lot of learning to happen still. And there's a lot of permission that needs to be given. And there's probably a lot of unlearning as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wish we could unpack all of that. But even just thinking through with COVID-19 and all of this um, that is just present right now, and it just seems to be like really impacting pastors in pretty significant ways. Um, how, how would you want to speak to pastors uh, who are experiencing trauma at this time? Mm. Yeah, with the pandemic that we're experiencing right now, uh, we are all in the same boat together. Whatever uh, senses of protection and that we're okay and trauma is something over there um, has been erased. Some of us have more resources, and so we may be more insulated, but we all are suffering, and we're seeing it from an economic standpoint, but also a spiritual standpoint when we can't gather together. One of the things I would want to say to pastors is this. It's an opportunity for people to grow in their hope in God to be able to express their deepest heart pains. This is the beauty of the scriptures. It doesn't shrink back from the hard things that are going on in our lives. Um, 
we want to get to revelation. <laughs> we want to get to um, the time where we are all rejoicing. And there is a space for that. But the scriptures over and over speak to the deepest pains in our hearts and don't just, you know, wash over them. So let's not do that. Let's give people the space to lament and to find actually in a Psalm 88 moment that you actually begin to develop hope. Because if I serve a God and who comes near to me in the midst of when I say darkness is my closest friend and I speak to you in almost sarcastic terms, and you, God, invite that, oh, that's a different relationship. Yeah, so when we think about the learning to lament, how would, I mean... How would you, even just thinking from someone who, you know, that word lament is literally stuck in a book of the Bible called Lamentations. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think a lot of us were um, just, we're product of a faith handed down that has a lot to do with with good and, you know, great things and rejoicing. Um, What are just like some super practical steps for people that are newbies at learning to lament and even the permission. Cause I, I think mm-hmm. there is a barrier for a lot of people. It's like, well, if I question God's goodness in this, or if I say I'm having a bad day, um, it's almost like, I feel like in some ways it's exposing the idols of God that we may have, have approached. So yeah. How, how would you, how would you just give some really practical steps for people that are brand new with understanding lament? Sure. Well, I'd start by reading the lament Psalms. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, About a third of them, right, or so, are lament psalms of the Book of Lamentations, which you'll notice ends on a question mark. (laughs) The high point is the middle of the book, and that's where we often quote. Um, But we don't quote the, if you haven't forgotten me forever, (laughs) ending. Um, Doesn't end on a happily ever after. So study a lament psalm together with your congregation. Study Mm -hmm. yourself. Preach on it. Talk about it. Psalm 13 is a great start. It's got a lot of the features of a lament. Um, uh, it's only six verses, so you can get through it and you can kind of look through what is it. There's a complaint. There's a questioning of God. There's a request for him to deliver. And there is, yes, uh, in this particular one at the end, a, remind, a remembrance of God's goodness in the past and a, a willingness to trust him in the future. But not all the lament psalms do that. And the only thing that's required in a lament is actually the complaint which of course is the part which a lot of people have issues around. Like I'm not supposed to complain, Um, but you see it. And if you want, don't want Psalm 13, try where David, I think it's in Psalm 42, is it? Uh, Where he talks, he keeps coming back to, why are you so downcast? And he keeps talking himself through it, but it's not like a one time and done. He comes back to it, but I'm still downcast. <laughs> mm. uh, these are the kinds of things. So that's what I would encourage. Like, have we ever felt this? Mm. Could we, as a congregation, as a community, small group, individuals, write our own lament to God? Remember, these were corporate sing- songs, right? These are corporate things to say to each other in the Psalms. So can we do them? Can we share them out loud and not have to have the, Yes, but um, it's all going to turn out in the in good in the end. Yeah, we, we get a lot of that. Uh, I call them Christian Hallmark cards, right? Like, yeah, but God's in control. He is in control, but let's not speed to you, right? It's like we want to skip over Good Friday and Holy Saturday to get to, to, to Easter yeah. Sunday yeah. too quickly on that. Yeah. So, you know, and this is heavy, this is heavy times, but you've been living in this idea of not just counseling, but counseling people through severe trauma, sexual trauma, you know, all sorts of trauma. How do you personally keep hope when you're hearing such horrific stories day after day, week after week, year after year? Yeah, it it is a challenge. I'm not going to minimize it. Um, It is a challenge. You cannot become a receptacle for everybody else's problems and expect not to have an impact on you. So bearing other people's stories will affect your life. And yet, when you see that when people begin to tell a bit of their story, and here I encourage people, don't force people to tell their stories before they're ready. But if they begin to tell a bit of their pain, 
and you see their load is lightened by it, that's a hopeful thing. When people can tell it and not be shamed for having that as part of their story, that begins to give hope. Mm. Um, when they are able to have someone bear witness to their tears, again, that reminds you that you're human and that, that God is present. Um, I'll tell you the opposite. When do I find myself the least hopeful? Is when someone begins to make that attempt and their community crushes it. Mm. Says you're not allowed to feel that way. You're not allowed to have those questions. Mm. Um, it needs to be all better already. You you've had your time. You know. Mm. You know we, you can't be in your Psalm 88 moment anymore. You got to move out. Mm. That's the part that you know when the structure doesn't allow for that or the system doesn't allow for that. That becomes the time when people start to lose hope. Uh, uh, no, I think the. The Jews, the Jewish practice is it Shiva, where, mm-hmm. where they sit, right? Yeah. In that for what, eight days? Mm-hmm. I think there's much for evangelicals to actually learn about the Jewish concept of Shiva, right? That's, yeah. I, I'm not I sure think... I've sat with that for eight straight days uh, on anything, but we just had someone in our community mm-hmm. yesterday uh, who passed mm-hmm. away, mm-hmm. and Doug and I have been grieving that. And, yeah. uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, what does Shiva look like? So I, I'm curious, I'm sure you've thought through that a little bit, but are there some practices of sort of mini Shiva that yeah. we can practice as Christians? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this, that uh, Job's friends uh, get a bad rap, actually. They do, you know, deservedly so, what they say when they speak. But which of us have done the seven days of sitting in silence uh, while someone cries, scrapes themselves and does that? When we've done that, then maybe we can speak up and start casting our stones at Job's friends. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> um, they actually do it right. They actually had a plan, and they went for that very purpose. You know, so they lasted a whole lot longer than I would. Yeah. <laughs> so what can we do? Um, giving people a chance. You know, this is where again, corporately allowing people to just be in silence together with things, to feel it, to play music together. Uh, we can do all those things even when we're separated, you know. And you can share your screen in Zoom and share your computer audio and listen to some music and have silence together and become more comfortable with that. Mm. I think we can also have services where we allow people to come and bear witness with each other to those pains, mm. even months and years after losses. Mm -hmm. I want to return back to when we were talking about how do you keep hope and you mentioned that, but I I wondered if you would dig down a little bit deeper and more specific on what are the practices that you cultivate for your own self-care and your own soul care. And And the reason why I'm asking is we want to get to know you a little bit more, but on top of that, I think that many of our listeners would say, man, it's been such a heavy season. And I know I need to care for myself right now. Kind of put the oxygen mask on me and pull the yeah. straps tight. But what, what, what is in your own life? And maybe even what are some things you might be ridiculously specific and practical about when it comes to for pastors? Yeah. This is always a challenge for everyone. So if anybody says they've got it easy and they're doing great at it, they're probably lying. <laughs> um, and I myself have given over to seasons of, you know what? I'm here, I'm supposed to be the strong one, the resilient one, and I'm just gonna keep pushing on because people need me to. And so um, recognizing that, acknowledging, admitting it to yourself and to somebody else is probably the first step. But think about this, what are all the things that trauma brings into life? It brings chaos, it brings darkness, it brings terror, brings disruption, it brings disconnection, it brings shame, it brings brokenness. And so imagine all these, just go ahead and write those kinds of things down. And on another side of a piece of paper, do that on one side, think about what are all of the opposites? And how can I introduce those opposites into my life? Mm. So where can you put order when chaos is in your life? For some people, that might be listening to classical music that has beauty and sound and order to it, right? There are certain kinds of classical music that's that. Maybe I just need um, life and growth. So I need to be outside looking for the buds. You know, it's springtime now, looking for the buds, looking for the things that are changing and growing. Where is beauty? Art. Um, Where is space? or 
conversation or silence. Um, so those are all things. Think about all of the antidotes to those toxic things that trauma brings and come up with a list of them. They're not going to be magic, but if you start uh, adding them into your life and finding space for them, you will find that you're beginning to remind yourself of God's created order mm. and the beauty in that. Mm. Mm. I think that's so helpful, Phil, even as I think about what it looks like to come back um, to a gathering together, a you know, spiritual gathering together in the next however many months it would be, but even online now, finding ways and opportunities to begin to lament together because I, I think one of the things that that I'm I, I would love to hear just some conversation around this too, but I know in a lot of trauma, it's so much of is is it so much of it is about the individual, but what happens when it is a global trauma? I mean, what, what does that do? And, and yeah, that's, that's a really helpful uh, question, a way to think about it because we all have our individual experiences. Uh, I remember one of these uh, TV guys, uh, you know, that probably is on PBS uh, for fundraising said, everyone's in a, a pool of their own tears. And i I think that's probably true when it comes to these traumas. And yet we also have a shared experience in that. And so a couple of things that I think can be helpful, again, lamenting community-wise what we've lost, but also, um, you know, in the Old Testament, we see uh, Israel being reminded of the ways that God has been faithful in the past and what he's doing now. So maybe remembering our community resiliences as well. And telling that story, you know, you're not just a trauma story. Uh, there's a narrative also of survival and there's a narrative of how did we survive? Well, there were certain people who came around and did certain things for us that brought us together. We didn't realize what Skype and Zoom and other things could do to bring us together um, in ways that we never knew about. Um, we were able to call each other up and ask questions, how we're doing in ways that we might not have done otherwise. So tell the story of the resilience and the survival as well. I think that can be a helpful uh, activity for us as we're yeah. going through this together. I think that's really, that's really good. And, and so, so someone who's been in, in the field of trauma for as long as you have, um, for a lot of us, it feels like really uncharted territory. And my, my sense is it is uncharted territory, but is there a specific flow? Like even just thinking present to three months to six months to a year, how, how do you see some of this stuff playing out and affecting faith communities and churches and individuals inside of it? Yeah, some things over time won't get better. Um, you think about certain kinds of traumas and losses you've experienced. You may not be feeling the full weight of it today as you did back then, but it's not as if the effects aren't still there, right? So I think for our communities, we really want to acknowledge that some losses, you know, will, will be permanent, at least in this life. Um, but your question is really good. Um, right now, I don't know that it's all that helpful to go into the deep theological, um, you know, training on where God is and what, you know, what we think about it. Sometimes we just need to figure out how do we take care of ourselves for today? Uh, in, in trauma therapy, we actually think about three stages. We think about um, safety and stabilization, or you're in the midst of it. What do you need now to maintain as health, be as healthy as possible, right? So that means getting good sleep, getting some exercise when you can, eating well, finding places to bring good into your life, even as you can't fix certain things. This is not the time to go into the deep recesses of all of your trauma memories. And think about this. Many of the people who are going through this now also have other traumas that they're here. And it, it might be surprising to you that because everybody's being traumatized, I, as somebody with previous trauma, I'm actually feeling a little bit better because I feel more understood mm. um, because you all feel anxiety too, right? So, but I don't need to go back and tell you all those deep histories. As we get out of that and we find that we're getting a little bit more space, 
then a wave of grief is going to come because then we really feel our losses. You know, the people who are on the front line serving us right now, they feel some of that now, but in six months, there's going to be a wave of it. And that's mm -hmm. where we need to not think, oh, I thought you would have moved on. Yes, this is how we grieve. So allowing for grieving of losses and talking about the memories and trying to put the pieces back together and realizing we can't. And as people have the freedom to do that, then they can move more into the, okay, so how will I begin to tell my life story from here? So that's more of the reconstruction side where I start thinking about some new identities. Before we got on, you, you mentioned that you think, and, I, and I've said this from the beginning too, and again, not it's just my sense, but I, I perked up a little bit when you said that you anticipate that maybe suicides will, will go up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Unpack that a little bit more. Is it relating to a little bit of that wave of grief down yeah. the road? Yeah. And, and here's a way to put it into sort of everyday life. If you've ever been a caretaker for somebody who's been sick and you might be had to do that for some time you may have found that you actually did quite well while they were sick. And when they got better um, and they didn't need as much attention, that's where the caretaker may fall apart. Why is that? Because they're worn out. Um, they're physically worn out, emotionally worn out. And also they've come to see some of the losses over time. They've had some distance. And so in the moment of a crisis, you just survive afterwards when you've survived and you see the wreckage you may feel a lot more depression anxiety a sense that life will never be normal again that you can't get it back and that's where hopelessness leads to potentially suicide people start considering suicide when their life is full of pain and they believe there's no way out other than suicide yeah. Yeah. When I've trained pastors, specifically when it comes to funerals, I say, don't be shocked when you find that the family that experienced the loss is the one comforting everybody else at the funeral. Mm -hmm. You think, how can they be holding it so well together? And they're the strong ones. I said, yeah, but wait, you need to write on your calendar three months, six months, nine months, and 12 months and check in with them because when the last casserole is eaten mm -hmm. and the last, uh, you know, mm -hmm. condolence card is received mm -hmm. and they're sitting there alone. That's when they fall apart. Is it similar to what you're exactly. talking about here? Exactly. And I will say that for church leaders who are holding it together for their mm -hmm. congregations and trying to figure out what to do for their congregation. When everybody comes back together, expects, okay, we're all ready now. And maybe the church leaders will be finding that they are starting to come apart. Yeah. So what preventative measures would you want to say to pastors now saying, if this is what you may be feeling down the road, it may not be suicidal, but mm -hmm. just worn out, what preventative measures or prophylactic or whatever in, you know, just to take priority now of what they might anticipate. One of them is just naming it like you're doing, you're helping us name it. Mm -hmm. But are there any other things that, I mean, is it worth if we don't have a counselor to just say, you know what, it might be worth just thinking about that as an option, or maybe you begin to schedule some of that to process this. What, what would you give in terms of some specific areas or resources? Yeah. Even if you only had someone to talk to that you knew was confidential for once a month, this might be a way that you can say some things and have it mirrored back to you to hear like, Oh wait, I think I took on a messianic complex here and I need to release a few things. Um, how about talking to your you know, if you have elders or deacons or a session or something, there are other church leaders to say, you know, well, how am I supposed to be getting rest here? Can you guys talk back to me? Tell me what we should be releasing. Mm -hmm. What should I be, you know, be doing? And so holding each other accountable. And if you can't do that with your own congregation, certainly find another pastor at another church that you can hold each other accountable for that. That's good. That's good. Yeah, that is really helpful, Phil. I, I do get the sense that there's a lot of people who are trying to um, who maybe don't even realize that that wave is coming. 
And so even just having that named, I think, again, there's just, there's a way of recognizing that in the midst of all this, it's just really, it it is so important to have these spaces and people that we can have conversations with, Um, you know, not to completely change direction, but even thinking of pastors, you know, like talking about lead pastors and folks, but like what, I mean, I'm thinking about youth pastors and children's directors and children's pastors right now. I mean, they're going to come back into potentially VBS mode and, you know, some of these like high watermark, you know, Christian camps, things like that. And, you know, what does it look like to be ready coming back with being present with kids and families? Yeah. Yeah. Finding ways now, of course, to do small things will certainly be beneficial so that they can feel connected to the people they're ministering, which I'm sure is happening in various forms, both live, online live, and, you know, some other mechanism. But that's going to be really important for that connectivity so that when you come back together, you're feeling like you're coming back together as a family and and you do have a shared experience. That shared experience is really what um, is also a sense of resilience. I, I didn't say this before, but if you want to know the secret ingredient to trauma, it is connection, social connection. Mm. The lack of it will almost likely increase traumatic symptoms. The presence of social connection often is something that helps ameliorate and erase the trauma symptoms. When I know I'm in this with you, then, um, then I have less trauma. And so, youth pastors and children's pastors being able to acknowledge the anxieties. Uh, We don't know what life is going to look like next. We don't, as adults either, we don't have all the answers. We grieve too. Uh, At ABS, we have a couple of lessons, one for adults and children around the COVID-19 experiences. And what we've heard from some of the people who are learning to use it with children and families is that, wow, I didn't realize I too had some stuff to process. And I would imagine that a leader who's able to do that and say that to the children and the, and the teenagers is going to have a whole lot more credibility uh, because they think, oh, they get it. They understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about um, not just pastors, but parents. And maybe you want to dive in a little bit to some of the resources, which we'll make sure we put at the end and also in our show notes to promote the good work that you all are doing. But, you know, like, for example, we've talked about this on the show here. Um, Every night at dinner, my family and I, we ask these three questions. What is the coronavirus taking away from you today? What is it not taking away from you today? And what is it given you today? And those have been really good to do lament, awareness, and also uh, gratitude. And sometimes those are five minutes. Sometimes it's an hour. It's, it's been great. What, what are, but what are some other, as parents are talking with kids, what are some very practical ABCs of how we might do that? Yeah, I, I, I love that. Um, you could, if your kids are younger and don't want to talk as much or even older and don't want to talk, could you draw things? Could you draw what you've lost? And maybe some people would even draw what they've gained. Like we have more family time and things like that. And for some families, that's really a positive thing. Um, so looking at losses together, acknowledging them, drawing them, um, you know, that is a, a big thing. I will say this. We have three questions in our um, trauma healing uh, curriculum. And it, they go like this. Question one, what happened? Question two, how did that make you feel? Question three, what was the hardest part? And uh, I'll tell you a little story. Um, I did a a little introductory training in my church about a year ago on trauma and faith. And I actually stopped in this uh, conversation of maybe there's 100 people in the room. I don't remember. But um, I actually had people pair up and just say, I want you to practice. Give yourself like seven minutes and ask these questions. And you can modify them. What happened? You know, like you could, uh, you know, modify that too. What was today like? What, you know, how did it make you feel? What was the hardest part? And um, a mom and a teen daughter were sitting next to each other and they did it. They each asked each other. And then when I said, so tell me, what was that like Um, to the whole audience? The mom raised her hand and spoke up. She goes, 
I don't think we've had this kind of conversation like this in maybe 10 years. And there was no preaching and there was none of the advising things that we parents get, you know, in that trap of doing and trying to correct or give them the, it's all going to work out, you know, speech. And you could see light in their eyes in a way. She said, I think we could do this at home. <laughs> so I like your example. And I think I'm just adding to it. Have those conversations and don't, you know, tidy it all up at the end. Mm. I think some people feel, oh, I don't, I'm not a great question asker. I've got to come up with these brilliant questions. I mean, I'm just, Doug and I are smiling here as you're giving these, like how simple they are. What happened? How did it make you feel? What was the hardest part? Like anybody can do that. Anybody can do that. So, so I love that. Because it's, it's so surprising. What's hardest for you might not be for me. And it's like a new way to learn something about mm. each mm. other. Mm. Yeah. What haven't we talked about that you want to make sure of the pastors who are, listen, who are listening in that you really, maybe there's one or two or a couple more things that you just really say, I want to make sure I communicate this to caregivers and pastors. Yeah, I'll say uh, two things that might seem contradictory. One, talk about trauma, acknowledge it, validate it as a real thing. That is an invisible heart wound. When you do that, your congregants will feel understood and heard and allow it to be what you say, full stop, without a, and we know God's going to heal all this stuff. Just, just stay there and do that. You will get conversations, however, if you do this, with people coming up and wanting to tell you about their traumas because you will now have seen to be safe. The, the second thing, which might sound contradictory, don't be surprised when people who are traumatized don't seem to take in your great advice and your sermonizing, your preaching, your teaching, even good stuff. And I'm not minimizing that. Um, there's an interesting passage that a pastor brought to my attention. Exodus 6, verse 9. Moses has just gotten direct from God the sermon he is to preach to his people. He goes to the people and he preaches it to them. He tells them. Don't worry, God's going to deliver you. Uh, that's the Cliff Notes version. And it says in verse 9, but the people did not listen because their trauma, their distress was too great. So if you are really doing a lot of work trying to help them and the people still seem stuck, don't worry. It's not about you. Yeah. It's about the effects of trauma. And this is where, you know, we're, our job is to bear witness. God's job is to heal. Mm, mm, mm. That's beautiful. Well, I, I can just imagine some pastors going, this is, this is good, Phil. Yeah, I want to stay in with it. But I think there are a few that might say, what about those people that are just wallowing in their pain? Then we do need them to move on. Where is the other side of that pendulum? We want to be patient, but where is a time after, I'm going to make this up and be uh, kind of hyperbolic. They've just been wallowing, saying the same thing every day or every week or every month for the past five years. When is it time to move on? What sort of pastoral guidance or wisdom would you want to give to those that, that are thinking that or feeling that right now? Yeah. It is possible that people can be stuck and maybe even find a life in pain, an identity in pain. Yeah. You might want to ask yourself, though, why would someone do that? Because nobody wants to be in pain and nobody, you know, wakes up some morning and thinks, I think I'm going to be somebody who is going to make my identity in pain. They're stuck. What do we do with stuck people? Um, we keep showing up. We keep showing up. And yes, we do keep reminding them of some things. So, you know, those three questions that I just asked, you could Add a fourth, which might be, tell me, what helped you survive today? Wow. And they might have to stop and think like, hmm, I never thought about that. And well, this happened. Good. I'm glad for that. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, Phil, it's, it's been an incredible privilege to have you on. We could keep talking, but we're, we want to be sensitive to your time. 
And uh, thank you so much for your willingness to share your wisdom. We, we know that trauma and dealing with trauma and healing from trauma is so important, but you uh, are such a gift in this season uh, for globally what we're preparing ourselves for. And I heard you say in the webinar that we shared a few weeks ago with the Diane Langberg quote has stuck with me. This is the mission field of our time. And so thank you for being on the front lines as one of those key missionaries in this season and for helping to train other missionaries to join on the front lines. So we're really grateful for this opportunity with you. Well, thank you for having me. You know, the church is the place where healing takes place and begins. Uh, it's not the realm of the professionals. It really is the realm of every church member. So I'm really grateful for what you guys are doing and helping uh, equip church leaders. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just as, as we end, you know, one of the things um, I think of that uh, Mr. Rogers quote, mm. you know, uh, where he said, you know, when I was little and I heard, uh, you know, I saw scary things. My mom always said, look for the helpers. And I think what we're learning in this is we need to look for the healers. The world is looking for healers. And uh, I, and my prayer in all of this is that as the world looks around for healers, they count us among, among them. And, uh, and you're Amen. helping us do that. So Doug and I are really grateful for, for you and the work you're doing. So, Amen. JR, I'm kind of glad that we're not sitting in the same room right now because I'd be embarrassed of my hand cramp uh, from all the notes <laughs> I was taking. <laughs> oh man, I'm so grateful for Phil. And uh, yeah, Phil used to be a, a professor at the, the uh, seminary you and I both graduated from. And so I'm really grateful for him and his work here in the Philadelphia area at the American Bible Society. Man, there's like so much that we could unpack here, but what, what <sighs> one or two or three things that really stuck out to you, Doug? Yeah, well, um, golly, I think one of the first things that really sticks out is the idea of getting ready for the wave of grief coming six months in. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I think for me that that was really helpful because I, I keep trying to think outside of, I think the place where, where pastors are struggling is we have to be present in the moment, but also being able to look a few months ahead to say what's coming next. And I think even just as I'm preparing my own soul for recognizing that I've been having a hard time recognizing where I'm at, uh, to realize that there is, there is a wave of grief coming. Um, I just think that was just really helpful. Uh, it kind of helped me realize that I think some of the conversation that you and you and I have had, even our last convert, one of the last conversations that we had on our on our podcast was just about the idea of running from being in the balcony down to the floor, back to the balcony, back down to the floor, and how pastors are tired in that. So that that was really big. I think too, um, just how trauma is a mission field. Um, that I feel like I really need to sit with that, and I feel like that is very significant for for it just resonated something really deep inside my own soul. And even realizing too, uh, we don't have to be trauma experts in order to enter into this mission field. We just had to be people who are willing to listen and be present. And I was just really grateful for those. How about you, JR? Yeah, I, so much is there. I've loved that quote that you mentioned from Diane Langberg. Uh, you know, trauma is the mission field uh, right now. And I absolutely agree with that. I really appreciated how we talked about when you experience trauma, list those things, you know, chaos, disorder, darkness, loss. And then he said on the other side of the paper, then list the antidotes, do the opposite. So if there's disorder, what would bring order? Right. And he talked mm -hmm. about then, you know, beauty, nature, art, conversation, maybe listening to classical music that has some order to it. That was really good. I like that idea. And it reminded me a lot of our going back to Steve Cuss's, you know, our life giving list, right? Like what are those things that are the opposite, the antidote of what we're feeling? What also stuck out were when he talked about the three stages of grief and trauma, right? Safety and stabilization. And Doug, you are so good at this. When I'm having a hard day, when things are difficult for me, you, one of the first things you ask me is, what do you need tonight? What do you need today? What do you need right now? Mm 
whether it's physical, emotional, mental, whatever. And that always jolts me in a good way to say, you know, what do I need right now? I need a nap. You know what I need mm. right now? I need to go for a walk. I need right now is just talking to Doug right now. And so I, I, I think, you know, he named that, but safety and stabilization right away. And then the second is, as we talked about, the wave of grief to anticipate that, to expect that. And then third, to like begin to tell your story. And that those three elements are so important. And I appreciate how he said, just don't, don't expect people to just share, like, you know, as they're sharing their story with you, don't, don't, don't go all theological on them, even though it's true, just that doing the right thing at the wrong time can become the wrong thing. Mm, <laughs> and that's so, good. so that really uh, stuck out to me, but also how we talked about drawing art with kids, you know, we hear of art therapy and, and again, you know, with Mako Fujimura, so much of Mako, what he talked about was art and how his trauma, you know, and art are, are connected. Yeah. Even with kids, just let kids do that. Let kids draw out uh, what that is, I think is, is really important. So, um, yeah, as far as a couple of resources, let's go through some resources and questions uh, here. But as far as some of the resources, Phil mentioned uh, beyonddisaster.bible, beyonddisaster.bible. Most people probably don't know that uh, we're used to .com or .org, but .bible is now a URL suffix. And uh, so beyonddisaster.bible. Uh, that you can go to. And as you go to the page, that's the Trauma Healing Institute at the American Bible Society. And uh, it's also, which we found out after the conversation with Phil, uh, their main piece of art is actually was a commissioned and licensed piece from Mako Fujimura. So it's kind of cool how all this connects. Um, But that is their opening artwork on the Beyond Disaster dot Bible uh, page. Um, He also mentioned uh, Psalms of Lament. And so Psalm Hmm. 13... Psalm 88 are really good uh, to be looking at and to write resources to write your own lament or maybe even to draw your own lament, which I think is a beautiful idea. We may even do that as a family tonight or the next few days um, after learning this. He kept mentioning Diane Langberg. We've mentioned her here in the last few minutes. She is a giant in the field of Christian counseling and of trauma recovery. Uh, when I was going through my doctoral program, I was required to read a book by her called Suffering and the Heart of God. It is a fantastic book. So we also want to recommend that Suffering and the Heart of God, How Trauma Destroys and Christ Restores. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful book that I highly recommend as well. So Doug, what are some questions uh, that we can ponder? Yeah. And yeah, ponder or draw out. Um, I really appreciated the way uh, he he encouraged folks and kids to be able to do that. But I think for adults too, that could be really good. But I just want to use the four questions that he gave with us, uh, that he shared with us. What what happened? Um, how did you feel? Uh, what was the hardest part? And what helped you survive today? I think those were just really timely questions for where we are right now. Mm, so yeah. JR, how about you send us out? Yeah, uh, I will. And I want to send us out in a little bit of a different way. I actually want to slowly read uh, Psalm 23. Um, and uh, just as I think it relates to so much of what Jesus as our good shepherd wants to offer to us. And so uh, Monday morning pastor uh, podcast listeners, uh, the Lord is our shepherd. We lack nothing. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside quiet waters. He refreshes our soul. He guides us along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though we walk, through the darkest valley, we will fear no evil. For you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. You prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. You anoint our head with oil. Our cup overflows. And surely your goodness and love will follow us all the days of our lives. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God bless and bless God. Amen. Amen.